All right, guys. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn with us to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And for those who are concerned with this kind of thing, this, is, this passage today is, um, wow, is it a challenging passage. It, this is uh, easily the most difficult passage in the book of Daniel. It's got to be one of the hardest passages in the Old Testament, maybe in the whole Bible. This, this, these four verses, Daniel 9, 24, 25, 26, 27, are extraordinarily challenging verses. The, I, it, what's good news, though, is that some of the basic things here, I think, are very clear, but some of the more uh, detailed aspects of this are, are man, they're, they're challenging. And so, we definitely need to pray. We also plan to spend two weeks on this passage because there's just so much to try to unfold. The first time you hear it, it's hard to hold on to much of anything that's happening, so we'll try to work through it twice and to give some more background uh, from the Old Testament to explain kind of why and what we believe here exactly. But uh, Papa Fred, could you pray for us? And then Greg, you, could you read 20 all the way to 27 and we'll yeah. start working through it? Before I pray, I want to read something from Calvin on these very verses that we're starting uh, to uh, tackle. Uh, already 70 years had passed away during which Daniel had never observed any sacrifice offered, and yet he still mentioned sacrifices as if he were in the habit of attending daily in the temple, which was not really in existence. Whence it appears how God's servants, though deprived of the outward means of grace for the present moment, yet are able to make them practically useful by meditating upon God and the sacrifices and other rites and ceremonies of his institution. If anyone in these days is cast into prison and even prohibited from enjoying the Lord's Supper to the end of his life, yet he ought not on that account to cast away the remembrance of that sacred symbol but should remember within himself every day why the supper was granted to us by Christ and what advantages he desires to derive from it. Lord Christ, thank you for um, old dead guys like Calvin who can just capture the essence of these opening verses where Daniel's praying uh, for understanding and the man Gabriel shows up at the time of the evening sacrifice. Lord, that is massive. Uh, it's, a, it's an example of, of how you do respond to prayer, uh, how you, um, you hear us, um, you, you come to, to uh, help us uh, through your spirit. And then he tells Daniel that, that he's greatly loved. I don't think there's a person in the room right now that wouldn't be loved to hear from, from our Lord. And, he's, and he's, we have heard from our Lord, but... Uh, from the man Gabriel that we're greatly loved. So be with us this afternoon. Give us your spirit, your help in uh, expositing these verses, which are, uh, as many say, are like descending into a dismal swamp. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. 
and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay, so if you remember from last week, the first 19 verses of this chapter, Daniel has been praying. The reason he's been praying is because he's been reading his Bible. He's been reading the book of Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah had died not long before this probably, and so Daniel, Daniel and Jeremiah's lives overlapped. De, uh, Jeremiah was certainly born before Daniel, but their lives overlapped. And Daniel is reading uh, the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah predicts that in 70 years, the people will return from exile. They'll come back home to Israel from Babylon. And so Daniel looks at the calendar, and he sees, okay, we're, we're getting close to 70 years. We're in the, in the 60s here of years of exile. And so he prays to the Lord and confesses his sin in verse 20 and the sins of his people. And he asks for the Lord to show mercy for his glory and for, for the good of his people. And uh, while he's still speaking, Gabriel, the angel, shows up to talk to him about his prayer. And let's look again at what the angel, what, what he hears here. So verse 20, rereading here part of this text. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of, the people, of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice." Now, just pause here for a second. The time of the evening sacrifice. In Israel, when things were going as they should be going, uh, they used to offer animal sacrifice every morning and every evening, year-round. Every day of the year, 365, it's commanded in the Old Testament, in Exodus, I think also in Leviticus or Numbers, it's commanded. And they did that every day. When Daniel is writing this, animal sacrifice has not happened in about 65 or 66 years because Israel has been destroyed, the temple has been destroyed, and yet he still sets his clock by the time of the evening sacrifice. That, that's an amazing thing. It's kind of like if you move to another country, you still remember what time it is back in your home country. Well, Daniel marks the time of the day by the time of the evening sacrifice that hasn't happened in almost his entire lifetime. So he's still thinking in terms of Israel, Israel's clock. Uh, verse 22, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. She's going to help Daniel understand the future. Verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So, studying this this week, I was personally encouraged by this verse, because we're told that when Daniel began praying, a word went out. In other words, an answer to his prayer went out the moment he started praying. But what you'll find, especially we'll see this in Daniel 10, 
There's oftentimes a gap between when we start praying and when we know of God's answer. Uh, remember, there's a three-week gap in chapter 10 between the beginning of the prayer and when the angel shows up three weeks later since I've been fighting with the prince of Persia. It's taken me 21 days to get here. So the, the moment Daniel started praying, God's answer went out. But Daniel doesn't hear about the answer for three weeks. Well, in some cases, it might be three years. It might be three decades before an answer to prayer comes about. But that doesn't mean that this verse is still not true. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. So thinking about praying for someone's salvation, you say, I've been praying for it for six months. I've been praying for it for six years. I haven't seen the conversion happen yet. Well, don't, don't forget that when we started praying, God started hearing. At the very moment we started praying, it may be a long time ago, but we know that the Lord is faithfully listening. And when the time is right, the Lord will answer the prayer as he sees fit. So that's, I hope that's an encouragement to you. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell it to you. So now Gabriel's gonna help Daniel understand the future. For a lot of us, we feel like we actually, things become more fuzzy in a second because what exactly are we gonna figure out? But we're gonna begin walking through these really challenging uh, four verses here. Anything on these opening comments before we jump in to verse 24? All right, Greg, can you, can you introduce us to verse uh, 24 here? Yeah, I'm gonna do my best. <laughs> um, he says, again, let's read 24 again. He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. And we're going to stop there uh, for a moment. Um, you know, Mark's already kind of mentioned this, Fred mentioned it, but this is one of the most um, difficult passages um, that we can study. Um, you know, if, if we were perfectly sanctified, we'd probably understand it with no trouble. Um, but we are all still sinful, we are limited, and so we do the best we can. Um, but there's been a lot of debate over these 70 weeks. How do we make sense of them? What are they? What, what's the time frame? When do they finish? Um, everything like that. Um, so let's just start by working through it. And as we go, we have a lot of comments, a lot of, lot of stuff hopefully that, to bring out that hopefully uh, will be helpful. So Daniel is praying for God to restore his people. He's praying for an end to the exile. He's praying for his city, his people to be restored, uh, the temple to be restored. And this is what God says in response. So 70 weeks, uh, literally 77. Um, most translations have weeks because it's referring to um, years, a week of years, seven years. And he says 77, 70 groups of seven years, 70, um, 70 weeks of years are decreed about your people and your holy city. So this is in direct answer to what Daniel was asking. And so here's six things that Daniel hears at the outset. And I think these six things help us understand here in verse 24, what we're going to read in verses 25, 26, and 27. It's all connected. Um, and so the first thing he says is to finish the transgression, um, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. Um, one commentator said these are kind of like the negative um, aspects of it, to, you know, do away with transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity. Um, and so, again, you've mentioned this, obviously in some way, uh, the ability to do sacrifice, to make atonement for sin will be restored. But this is beyond just a restoration. It seems like just a restoration of what they had in Jerusalem. This is a final um, end to sin. This is a final uh, atonement for iniquity. 
Um, and so we're looking for something here that is incredibly, incredibly, um, let me get the right words here, that is much bigger than anything they had experienced to this point. Uh, he says to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. Um, and so whatever it is that Daniel's about to hear, it is about these six things. Um, God is going to do something at the end of these 70 weeks um, that's going to atone for sin in a way that's never been, hap- never been done before. Um, righteousness is going to be brought in. Everlasting, eternal righteousness is going to be brought in. Vision and profit are going to be sealed up, and that's a, a way of speaking about brought to a conclusion, brought to an end, and to anoint a most holy place or a most holy thing. It's kind of open there. It's just really to anoint a most holy. Um, and so Daniel is looking at the future and God's final plan for God's people. Okay, so we have to keep that in mind. Thoughts? I'm immediately... Uh hit by the thought. I, mean, I think Daniel was honestly praying to, uh, to God for, uh, uh, for relief for this 70 years of captivity because like you say, he, he realized he, he was in a position to know what time it was in the empire and, and how long he'd been there and that type of thing. So he was legitimately asking, okay, when, when can we go back home? I think. Mm-hmm. When are these 70 years of, because God told him in Jeremiah that he was going to come, issue in a new covenant uh, and, and, and they'd be there for 70 years and 70 years is about up and it's time. I don't think ever, you guys help me, but I don't think ever in Daniel's wildest did he imagine 24, that, that this was going to usher in uh, Messiah. And Messiah would accomplish all of these six uh, decrees uh, forever and, and complete them by his sacrifice. So he's, he's getting much more than what he prayed for, I guess. And uh, maybe we ought to think about that when we pray. <laughs> well, that's good. If you'll if you hold your spot here and turn to Leviticus 25 just for a moment. I think this will help us a little bit understand the use of 77s. If, if you're like me, we don't spend a whole lot of time in Leviticus probably, and so we may not be as familiar with this kind of language. For Daniel and his Jewish audience, they would be highly familiar with Leviticus. Well, as soon as you say seven sevens or 77s, they immediately are thinking of what we now call Leviticus 25. So l- look here at, this is called the year of Jubilee. I'm sure you've heard of the Jubilee year, the release of captives, the setting free of prisoners, the re- release from all debts, this whole idea of, of this turnaround that happens on the 49th and 50th year. L- look at uh, Leviticus 25, verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years. Does that sound familiar? So you've got 77s right here. You've got seven sevens, seven weeks of years. So the days are analogous for years. Okay, so you shall count seven weeks of years. Seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. Now just stop here for a second. 
On the seventh seven, that's the 49th year, right? Going into the 50th year. On the seventh seven, what happens? The Jubilee, right? Every 49th year, every seven sevens, you have this moment where if you have debts accrued within Israel, they are canceled. The prisoners are set free. Whatever's going on, there's this release from captivity. There's this wonderful sense of, of freedom and joy and jubilee and celebration. That's what happens every seven sevens. Okay, now think about this. Daniel's talking about a 70 times seven. Okay, that would be a tenfold jubilee. You follow in here? So seven sevens is a jubilee. Seventy times seven is a tenfold jubilee. It's ten times. Ten is a number of completion in the Bible. Uh, you'll, you'll notice that. And so when, when you hear 70 times seven, this is the tenfold jubilee. This is the ultimate release from debt, sin debt, right? This is the ultimate release from captivity, bondage to sin. This is the ultimate freedom. This is the ultimate celebration. This is the ultimate jubilee. It is the ultimate time of joy and freedom. Now turn with me to Isaiah 61 in your Old Testament, so just still before Daniel, but Isaiah 61. And after this, I want to look at Luke 4. So just hang with me here for a moment. Isaiah 61. Before I read this, let me give you a little background on Isaiah, and I would love to, maybe next week we can spend more time trying to explain this. So everybody, listen, think about this for a second. Isaiah is written, and the second, Isaiah... 40 to 66 is looking ahead to this Babylonian captivity that Daniel and Jeremiah lived through, okay? So in Isaiah 40 to 66, it's talking about the same thing that Daniel's dealing with. He's the same issue of exile and return that, that Daniel is wrestling with. In Isaiah 40 to 66, you have two very fascinating characters that show up. You have one character who is called God's Messiah, but it, it means anointed one, okay? It's not Jesus, the anointed one he refers to is a man named Cyrus who was a pagan king, right? We've heard about him in Daniel. His name is also Darius, we think, in Daniel and Cyrus. He is a pagan king. He is not a Christian. But God calls him my anointed. And he says, I'm going to use Cyrus to do what? To physically send my people back home from exile. When, when uh, Cyrus, the king of the Persians, destroys Babylon, remember, he takes Belshazzar at his feast and destroys him, his drunken feast. And what does he do? Within a year or so, he declares freedom for God's people. Go back home and rebuild your city, rebuild the temple. You guys can go back to life as usual. God says, Cyrus is my anointed. He's going to let the people go. So Jeremiah's 70-year exile is going to come to an end through the use God sovereignly is going to use a pagan Persian king to send the captives home at the end of the 70-year period. Everybody got that? Now, you know the old saying, you can, get, uh, you can get the people out of Egypt, but you can't get Egypt out of the people, <laughs> all right? The Israelites keep acting like the Egyptians, worshiping golden calves just like the Egyptians do because they've left Egypt, but they're still acting like the Egyptians in their idolatry. Well, you can get the people out of Babylon, but you can't get Babylon out of the people. So the problem, as you see in Nehemiah, is the people come back from exile and you get to the end of Nehemiah and what's happening, the people are starting to, there's intermarriage going on that Ezra has to deal with, with pagans, all kinds of covenant breaking is going on. So the people are home, we're rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls, everything's looking great. And then when Nehemiah comes back to town, he sees people compromised, breaking covenant. And he's, he's about to flip out. Nehemiah actually does flip out. If you've read the story, he starts pulling people's hair out. I don't recommend that as a strategy for how to deal with idolatry, but Nehemiah gets really angry about that. Well, what's going on is the first, the 70 years of physical captivity is over. The people have come back, but the spiritual captivity and the spiritual exile has not yet been dealt with because the sin is still rampant. So Isaiah mentions another person. You got Cyrus the anointed who lets the people go physically back home. And then Isaiah talks about the suffering servant who's going to bear our, bear our sins 
by his wounds we are healed. The suffering servant is going to set us free from spiritual captivity. And Isaiah speaks of these two deliverers, one a pagan king from physical exile, one the suffering servant of the Lord who delivers us from spiritual bondage and exile. And Daniel is worried mainly about that first one, but he's about to find out there's a second level here. There's a spiritual captivity that must be dealt with, and that's going to come not after 70 years, but after 490 years, the, the, the 70 times 7. So here, here's what Isaiah says about this ultimate jubilee, Isaiah 61.1. This is about Jesus, obviously. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So there's anointing here, messianic-type language. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. This is good jubilee language. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, I'm almost done. Turn to Luke chapter 4. You may remember the first time that we hear about where Jesus goes to his home uh, synagogue in Nazareth. He gets up in verse 16 of Luke 4, as was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the ultimate jubilee, verse 20, and He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him, and He, Jesus, began to say to them, what? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Now, do you see? The, the promise of Isaiah is not just physical release from bondage through Cyrus, it's what? Spiritual release from bondage through the suffering servant who's anointed by the Spirit of God. And Jesus gets up to his home church, right, his home synagogue. He opens Isaiah, reads Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit is on me to, to bring about this ultimate jubilee, and Jesus rolls the scroll up and sits down and goes... I'm fulfilling that right here and now. Today, I am doing that right there. I am the Messiah. I'm the suffering servant. I'm going to usher in this time of ultimate freedom from sin and captivity. I'm going to preach the good news. I'm going to be the deliverer that Isaiah prophesied and that Daniel got, got a glimpse of in, in Daniel 9. So we can turn back to, to Daniel 9. However, as that verse finishes in 28, when they'd heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up to drive him out of town. That's right. So that wasn't well received. No, it was not. So back to Daniel 9, and uh, Greg, do you want to pick up in verse 25? Yeah. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, <clears throat> excuse me, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Now, I'm going to say I love the English Standard Version. It is um, right now my favorite but it doesn't get verse 25 with the best translation, okay? I'm going to read from, um, this is actually the quickest one I can call up. It's the, the newer Legacy Standard Bible. Listen to the difference there. Look at your ESV, but listen to the difference. It says, so you are to know and have insight that from the going out of a word to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks and it will be restored and rebuilt. Did you notice the difference there? The ESV says that the anointed one's gonna come after the seven weeks, and then there's 62 weeks after that. 
I think in this case, this is one of the few places that, that I don't know what they were thinking when they translated this with the ESV. Um, it's actually better to, say, to read it. There's, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and after that is when the Messiah will be cut off. Um, otherwise, this passage does not make good sense. Um, and I think no matter your interpretation of it, this is the right way to take it um, because otherwise it has an anointed one coming in 70 years and then somebody different, you know, the 420 years after that. And it just, it really doesn't make good sense um, of what's going on here. Let me just back up what yeah. you said. Almost every English translation agrees with what Greg just said. I don't, the ESV kind of stands alone on this one. I don't know why, but almost every English translation, I looked at 30 plus of them, they all say that the seven weeks and 62 weeks go together and then the Messiah comes. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the Messiah comes after the 69th week, which is the, the, the very end, which is when Jesus shows up. So just, I, and the ESV has that in a footnote, which I think is the correct reading, but they don't have it in their main text. Yeah, and so that does affect it because, again, thinking in light of the Jubilee that we're talking about, that's, that uh, Jesus himself is bringing, this only makes sense um, if those two are connected. Um, what else do you guys have for verse 25? Yeah, I, so interesting here. One of the big questions is when do we start the countdown clock? Okay, so the countdown clock is you've got 70 times 7. You've got, uh, you've got 490 uh, days or metaphorically years. When do we start the countdown clock here? And um, okay, this, this is a big debate point. And I will just tell you, I have actually changed my mind on this over the last year or so working on this. I used to take these years extremely literally. So I, I thought, okay, you have, you have to have a countdown clock and you got to be able to count down the number of years and get precisely to the crucifixion of Jesus. And there's a way to do that, depending on where you start with it, with the countdown clock. And I... I am less inclined to take that view now. It's not because I'm going liberal. It's not because I think the Bible is lying. It's not because of that at all. Um, I think that there's a metaphorical use of the 77s. In the same way that Jesus uses 70 times 7 metaphorically when he speaks of Christian forgiveness. Remember Matthew 18? Peter says, how many times should my brother sin and turn and repent and I forgive him? Should I? And Peter's about to pat himself on the back. Lord, should I do it even seven times? Like Peter's like, I'll, I'm, I'm willing to forgive the perfect number seven times. That's a whole lot. And Jesus is going, Peter, how about 70 times seven? Now, I don't know about you, but I was a kid and Kevin Young said the same thing, but I, I was a kid. I used to take this very literally. And I used to wonder, what if one of my brothers does something and they sin against me? What if it's the 491st time I no longer have to forgive them? And I took it very literally. Now to take the number 70 times seven literally in Matthew 18 would be wrong. Because after 490, you still have to forgive a repentant brother. Jesus does not mean the number literally. He means it symbolically. It's a number of completion. It's a number of 70 times 7 is the tenfold jubilee. It's the ultimate sense of, of return. And I think similarly, Daniel is using the 70 times 7 here with a symbolic value, not a literal year-by-year -year value. Let me give you another reason why I think that. Jeremiah's 70 years of exile, if you do the math, it's not literally 70 years of exile. It's about 66, 67, 68, depending on how you date it. It's not actually 70 years. It's 605 BC to 538 BC. It's just under 70 years. Does that mean God lied? No, it does not. 70 is a symbolic rounded number for completion. It doesn't have to be lined up exactly to the very calendar day for it to be a fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. Uh, 605 to 538 is not exactly 70 years. That's not the point. The point is it's near 70 years and it is a symbolic number of total completion. That's the idea of, a, of what's going on here. So when we deal with the 70 times seven, um, the question is, man, this is gonna be hard to follow here. Question is, where do we start the 70 times seven? And here are three options. I think it's gotta be one of the three. 
Number one is Cyrus's decree that the exiles have got to return. Now, I'm going to go ahead and just say, I think this has got to be the place it starts. This is 538 BC. This is when 2 Chronicles ends with this. Uh, it's mentioned several times in the Old Testament. Cyrus's decree has got to be the decree to send the exiles home. Uh, all the other decrees that come later are simply a echoing and repeating of the earlier decree by the original King Cyrus, who was sent by God as the anointed one to deliver. So I think biblically with Isaiah and 2 Chronicles and Ezra 1, other passages, I think Cyrus has got to be where we start the countdown clock, which is 538 BC. Another option is Artaxerxes' commission to Ezra in Ezra 7, which is in 457 BC. And another option is Artaxerxes' commission to Nehemiah in Nehemiah 2, which is in 444 BC. And you can try to pick the later dates and try to make it line up with the life of Jesus. And that, there's a certain attractiveness to that view. That's the view I used to hold. I used to think it was one of those later decrees and you could line it up to 490. You'd get right to Jesus' death uh, on the cross or 482, whatever, 83, whatever the number is. But uh, I, I, and I hope if you give us time, I hope we can try to be persuasive why we don't take the number exactly literally. I think it's a symbolic number that ultimately does lead to, uh, to Christ's life. One more thing, the, the uh, seven weeks... Okay, this is, I know, this is the first time you're looking at this in a while. This is a little confusing. So, Daniel hears that there's going to be 69 weeks, and then the Messiah is cut off. So, this first 69 weeks is split into two pieces, seven weeks, weeks. and 62 weeks, which added up is 69 weeks, okay? So, seven and 62. Why does he split it? Why does he just say 69 weeks? Why does he say seven and 62? And I think the answer is uh, the seven weeks, I think, represents the time of the initial rebuilding of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. I think this leads us all the way to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah in the 400s. This is the first seven weeks, which leads you to the initial rebuilding stage. There's a time of trouble during this time. But then after seven weeks, after that first initial time, the city is rebuilt. The Old Testament ends. And then you have the 62 weeks following where there's a lot of things happen, but the city's reestablished and we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And then what? 69th week shows up. That's when the Messiah uh, arrives on the scene. Thoughts on that? Well, for for one thing, I think that uh, you mentioned the uh, uh, Cyrus as an anointed one in Isaiah and then the suffering servant. So he obviously wasn't the suffering servant. But he clearly was a player. He's just simply mentioned too many times. It'd be one, one thing if his name was mentioned as, as other secular rulers are, but it's mentioned 23 times in Ezra, um, uh, Chronicles, uh, Isaiah, uh, as- And he's called God's anointed, which- God's anointed. That's pretty unusual fact, language. Here, here's a verse, uh, 4428. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd? You didn't read this, did you? No. Uh, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purposes saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So he's a type of Messiah too. Uh, so I think the beginning is definitely with, with, uh, with Cyrus. Those other dates don't really work out that well. Not that we're looking for precision in the dates, but the, the Ezra and Nehemiah dates later on, the temple was actually rebuilt and opened in 515, and then the city around that time or sometime thereafter. But uh, no, I agree with you. Are we ready to get into verse 26? Let, let me say one last thing on 25. So th- th- just so we can hear it carefully, look at verse, uh, the end of verse 24 says, the anointing of a most holy place, person, thing, something like that. Who is this anointed most holy? Verse 25 again. 
Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, we think that's Cyrus in 538 BC, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then 62 weeks, etc. Okay, this is crucial. And then there shall be, after the 69 weeks, there shall be an anointed one, a prince. He's called anointed, the word for Messiah, and he's called a prince. Those two words describe one individual. There is no doubt in any Christian's mind who this has got to be. This is clearly Jesus. This is the only, I think it's the only explicit reference to Jesus as the Messiah in the Old Testament. I think that is correct. It's one of the few where, where the Messiah is explicitly identified as the anointed one. So in 25, after the 69 weeks, the Messiah, the prince, he shall arrive on the scene. And then here, we'll hear what happens here in verse 26, Greg. All right, so let's read verse 26 again. It says, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now, this is where it really starts to get thorny. And that's why I'm thankful we're doing this over two weeks um, because we'll really only be able to start talking about this. This is where diverging interpretations come into play. Um, and they're significantly different um, in terms of what they see happening in this passage and what this means for like how we understand the New Testament, how we understand God's plan for the church versus God's plan for Israel um, and everything like that. And before we jump into that, I want to make sure we say this as clearly as possible. Good Bible-believing Christians can disagree on this. Um, so, you know, some of my heroes of the faith, I would not agree with them on how they take this passage. Um, <clears throat> and I'm referring to folks like John MacArthur and stuff like that, who are of what's called the more dispensational perspective. Um, and so we need to talk about that and then show, because that's probably the most common one out there, um, just in terms of people having an understanding of Daniel, God's plan for the future. Um, that view is probably the most common one out there. And we'll explain it a little bit and then move, um, start moving into why we don't see it that way. Okay, so verse 26, after the 62 weeks, it says an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Um, and so a dispensational teaching, uh, one who you know, sees God has a different plan for, for Israel and the church, this is one of the key texts where they get that. The dispensational will look at this and say, okay, um, the 69 weeks are over. Um, and notice it doesn't talk about the 70th week. Why? Because the Messiah was cut off. So the 69th week stops, and then there's a gap of time. Why? Because this anointed one has been cut off, okay? We obviously know the Messiah is Israel's Messiah. He's the one they've been longing for. They've been hoping in that he would come. Um, and so when he is cut off, God's plan for the 70 weeks stops, okay? And so what happens is that 70 week, the, the 70th week is not yet, and so there's this long interval of time, which is often called the church age or the age of grace, depending on how you, how you look at it. And it's at the end of that time, the end of that interval uh, time, that that interval time ends, God picks back up with his plan for Israel in the 70th week. Hence, there's seven years at the end, the church is raptured out. Uh, God continues his plan with Israel. You get, look again at verse um, 26, the people of the prince who is to come, this is the antichrist who is going to come and destroy um, 
destroy the city and the sanctuary, it's in will come with a flood. So that final seven weeks, the 70th seven, is still at some future point, and we're not in it yet. Because again, God, they say God suspended his plan for Israel because they rejected Jesus, they rejected the Messiah. And so that interval time, that parenthetical time is called the church age. That's what we're in now, according to this view. Um, and so the seven, again, the, the last week, that 70th week will not start until um, the church is taken out and God resumes his plan with Israel. And again, there's a lot of consistency to this. Okay, like it makes sense of a lot. Like there, it's a consistent perspective on the Bible. Um, we're just not convinced it's the best way to understand what's going on here. And there's several textual issues that we're going to look at. Again, we're just going to start this this week. We're going to finish it, um, finish it up next week. But let me, let me yeah, jump in there, Greg. So what, again, in Southern Baptist world, going back to what we talked about probably November, December in here about the rapture and things like that, um, in Southern Baptist world, it is just taken for granted mm -hmm. that the end times works like this. The church is secretly raptured out of the world. We disappear. Jesus comes back halfway from heaven. It's an invisible return, a secret rapture. We, we go to heaven. During those seven years, we're in the mansions of glory up there. And uh, during the, then we have Daniel's last week takes place. The seven years of tribulation comes from Daniel's 70th week. In other words, how you interpret the 70th week of Daniel fundamentally changes pretty important parts of your eschatology, of your end times views. Mm -hmm. And th this is a crucial anchor text for the dispensational perspective. So the idea there's a future seven year of tribulation where the Antichrist reigns, the church is secretly raptured, seven years of tribulation where the seals, trumpets, and bowls of revelation wrath are poured out on the earth, and it's just tr a tremendous time of, of, of just horrific suffering. 144,000 Jews are converted to Christ and witness to the world. Jesus comes back visibly at the end of those seven years. He judges his enemies. He saves his people and then ushers in the premillennial position. He ushers in the, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And at the end of the thousand years, there's another final resurrection, final judgment, and then the eternal state. That's, that's, that view is just taken for granted in Southern Baptist world. People just assume, of course, that's what the Bible teaches. And while we agree with some of those basic elements about Christ returning and the resurrection, of course, mm -hmm. we, we would have a pretty different view of the 70th week of Daniel's week. I am, first of all, convinced that there is no gap in time between the 69th week and the 70th week. I think as soon as the 69th week ends, the 70th week begins. And I think the 70th week began around the time of Christ. And so um, that's a very different perspective on this. So Greg, I interrupted you. Keep no, going. No, that's fine. Um, I am going to have to get into verse 27 just to make full expression of this. Um, again, and like I said, this is kind of the common perspective. We're going to push back against this. But verse 27, this again, like you said, defines how many folks understand the, the end. It says, he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, one of the key things we're going to look at is who is the he in verse 27? Who is the he? Um, and it literally, it can either be, and we're going to argue <laughs> that it's Christ but another perspective says this is the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, who's going to oppose God, rule the world, and lead the world in this rebellion against God. And so if you take it that this is referring to the Antichrist, then this can't be talking about any covenant with Israel, any new covenant that was promised. This is a treaty that the Antichrist makes with Israel um, for a seven-year thing. And in the middle of that, he, you know, he shows that he was lying. He turns his back. He breaks his word. He brings, you know, the temple and all that's been going on in Israel. Um, he breaks his word. He brings all that to an end. He heavily persecutes Israel and, the, and you know, any other believers at that time. Um, and so that's one way to look at it. 
But if the he is not the antichrist, but the he is the same individual as the anointed one, the Messiah, the prince, then that totally changes how we look at this. And that's what we can just start talking about right now is why we think this is actually a reference not to the antichrist, but to Jesus himself. Um, and that totally changes the shape of how we, how we leave Daniel 9, and it totally changes the shape of our understanding of, of what we should expect in the future. Because if the 70th week is, is not some future time, but it immediately followed the 69th week, then maybe that's impacting us more than we realize. Maybe this church age isn't actually an interval time. It's not a parenthetical time. It's actually what God had been planning from the beginning. This is the great point here. So look, look at 26 and 27 again. And if you, if you, this is hard to explain without a diagram or something, but it, 26, imagine this, how uh, you could structure the two halves of each verse. So 26 has two halves and 27 has two halves. I highlighted them in different colors so I can see them. I've got orange matching with them. So uh, what you could have here is a chronological progression. And uh, 26 could be A, B, and then 27 could be C, D. Chronological progression in time, A, B, C, D. And that would be the dispensational perspective, mm -hmm. A, B, C, D. The view that we're arguing for is, is a repetition. So you're getting actually A, B in 26, and then you're getting A negative, B negative in 27. So I think Kevin Young gave the example. If he said, dad's coming home from work, we're gonna go to the restaurant. He's coming home soon, we're going out to eat. That's A, B, A, B, right? So you said the same thing twice. You just repeat it in two different ways. Old Testament does this all the time. Especially in prophecy. Especially, yeah, prophecy, poetry. You'll often have synonymous parallelism where the mm -hmm. same thing is said twice in different words. And the wicked will be cut off. The evil people will not inherit the land. Those are two ways of saying the same thing. I, I, I'm pretty thoroughly convinced that 26 is A, B, and then 27 is A, B, uh, which means we're not talking about the Antichrist in 27. We're talking about the Christ, which is a very different referent uh, than, uh, than it could be otherwise. So, uh, Greg, keep, keep going there. Yeah, so a, a feature of Hebrew prophecy and Hebrew uh, poetry and stuff like that is that parallelism. And there's another word um, that, that's helpful, and that's recapitulation, meaning it can, um, when it's dealing with stuff like this, it can look at an event from one angle. And then it circles back around and looks at that same event from a slightly different angle, either a deeper, a wider, some kind of other perspective that sheds more light mm -hmm. on what's going on. That's going to be key, I think, to, you know, if you were to read the book of Revelation, because we're going to go there eventually um, with some other parts of, you know, how the New Testament takes what Daniel's saying here. But that's a feature that's very common in the book of Revelation, this recapitulation. It's looking at the same thing, just a little more in depth, giving a little more information. That is a feature of Hebrew prophecy. We are wired in America uh, here in the U.S. to think linearly, yep. like, doop, 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 like, like he said, the A, B, C, D. Our wiring is not A, B, circle back around A, B. Like that's just not how our brains are trained to think, but that is how Hebrews thought. That's how Hebrews wrote. That's how the Jews, so much of, of their expression carried that type of thinking. And so we have to, in a sense, really take off our, our, our Western way of, of linear thinking. Not that there's not movement, but it's not exactly the way we're used to movement taking place. An, an example would be when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. He just went back and said the same thing twice, but he uses different metaphor. Hunger is one metaphor, thirst is another. And when you put them together, you have a more holistic sense of what he meant. It's kind of like, you know, some of you may have surround sound at your house. 
I do not. There was a day in which we did. Scott used to have surround sound speakers. It was, it was kind of nice. But uh, if, imagine, imagine listening only to your left speakers as you listen to some piece of music, and then listening to it again with only the right side of speakers, and then putting it together almost three-dimensionally, where you, you have a sense of the whole thing now. That's how the Hebrews thought. They'll give you speaker left first, they'll give you speaker right second, and then you, you're meant to step back and put it together as a mm -hmm. three-dimensional picture that gives you sort of yeah. detail and clarity on that. And we are almost out of time. This is... <laughs> That's why we said two weeks. That is right. I will say this, Greg. Yeah. You, you've done a good job in framing the, the dispensational view versus, you know, the, the view that we're discussing today. So it's going to be fun next week to yes. kind of wrap it up. Absolutely. L let me wrap it up on a note that everybody, I think, agrees on. Let me reread verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Number one, to finish the transgression. Number two, to put an end to sin. Number three, to atone for iniquity. Four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Five, to seal both vision and prophet. And six, to anoint a most holy. I think that's a most holy one. I think that's Jesus, the true holy of holies. So, well, here's what we agree on. At the end of the day, when these 70 weeks are over, Jesus, the anointed prince who's to come, is going to get rid of sin. He's going to usher in righteousness. Animal sacrifice will no longer be necessary, and we will have a right standing and right relationship with God. No matter what view you have, the Christian view is going to be that is, that's the basic central message of this passage. And Lord willing, next week, we will review some of this and try to finish off because it, it is a, it's a complicated passage. So Greg, can you close us in prayer? Father in heaven, God, we just stand... Um... We, we bow before you and, Lord, your truth. Um, Lord, I pray that we'd be humbled um, as we study this passage in Daniel 9. Lord, uh, I know I've studied it a lot, thought about it a lot over the years. I know the other guys on this panel have. Um, and, Lord, we want to be faithful as best we can to what is written here. Um, and, Lord, I just pray that, Lord, as we... Lord, have genuine believers, godly men uh, that we would disagree with on this. I pray, Lord, that we would present, um, help us present what we believe to be the most faithful interpretation, Lord, to do it humbly, but with conviction and clarity. Um, and Lord, I pray that as we uh, think over what we've looked at today and get back into this next week, that we would uh, have a greater and greater appreciation for Jesus, um, a greater and deeper trust in him. And Lord, all the more may we anticipate and look forward to his second coming um, when he will establish your kingdom over all the world. Uh, Lord, we long for that day more than anything. And uh, Lord, help us grow in that longing as we study this passage in Daniel 9. We thank you for the privilege of doing this, Lord. And um, just go with us now as we gather as our whole church family to worship you in prayer and in song. And through the word, we pray that Christ would be exalted, that our hearts would be drawn to him. And that if there be any who are unsaved, Lord, that today, Lord, you would open their eyes to see their sin and their need of a savior and that Jesus is that savior who can save them. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.